You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Walter-Kent. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what do you got for us today? Today's episode is John Sullivan, more often known as Blackie Sullivan or Blackie the Civ. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So Blackie kind of hops back and forth between Chicago and Milwaukee. So we're going to be going back and forth throughout this episode. Just be aware. One of those really hard ones to follow. I'll try. I'll try my best. All right. So as a young man, he's already like getting involved in crime. At the age of 17, he's arrested for burglary, but apparently the charges get dropped because they release him. He then travels around Chicago getting arrested for robbery and burglary and vagrancy and other assorted theft crimes. And then in June 1924, he's arrested for robbery and sentenced to 10 years in state prison. He does not stay in prison for 10 years. He makes it two years? He actually makes it about five. Well, They were being pretty thorough. Oh, yeah. Not get, enough corruption on that one, huh? Yeah, he gets he gets out, and uh, not even a year later, he's arrested again. It's time for a conspiracy. He spends a day in the county jail, then he's sent back to prison for violating his parole. He gets back out of prison, and uh, he's arrested a few more times for burglary, but the charges are dropped. He's arrested for something that I don't know what it is, because it's just a statute that the, the Chicago police apparently use, and he's fined $25 for that. So he's hopping around various crimes. He's arrested for robbery again, but the charges are dropped. He's arrested for robbery again, but the charges are dropped. What kind of time period are we uh, dealing with here? We're now we're in the early 30s. So he, I mean, he wasn't a very good criminal is what I'm getting from this. No. <laughs> he's arrested a third time. This is all within a month or a couple months in 1934. The third time... The charges are dropped. (laughs) But then, the fourth time, he's arrested for armed robbery, and he's sentenced to life in prison, and he's released six years later. (laughs) (laughs) While he's back out, he's, he's picked up repeatedly on general principles, which just means if the police see him and know who he is, they pick him up just to give him crap. (laughs) So he's picked up a few times. Now we're into the, the mid 1940s, because he's been in prison. He's arrested in 1945, still in the Chicago area. He denies that he's stolen anything recently. He tells the police, I haven't stolen anything lately. But he's hauled in for an investigation anyway. He then is again let go. So how many of these things he's actually doing stuff? And how many they're just giving him crap? I don't know. But they, they call him in like every time there's like a theft. They're like, oh, it's called Blackie in here. <laughs> so he's in constantly. Then he gets to what he's kind of known for. Okay. January 1947, he shot and wounded outside the Torch Club in Chicago, which is on North State Street. He walked out of the club accompanied by two women, and he recognized men who he knew that were his enemies. He tried to duck behind his car, but he took a 38 bullet to the stomach. Police found his gun in the backseat of the car. At the hospital, he confessed that he knew who his assailants were, but he wasn't going to say who they were. The hospital staff said that he was abusive to them, and he tried to flee the hospital multiple times before they could fix him up. A few of his uh, associates 
get killed around this time, a man named John Golding and a man named John Williams. They're both involved in some of his crime sprees, and they are both killed around 1947. He then becomes uh, elevated from robber to bomber. Wow. He's suspected of bombing the home of a Chicago alderman. He's then also suspected of bombing an upholstery firm. I don't know why he's this <laughs> upholstery place, but he's suspected of both of them. Not charged. May 1948, he's shot by a 45 at the corner of 73rd and Yale, still in Chicago. His assailants were in a new car and fired at him twice, once into his car window and once towards Sullivan as he fled through a schoolyard. The second bullet shattered his right arm and he was forced to take refuge inside an apartment building. From there, police took him to the hospital where doctors said his arm might have to be amputated. It wasn't. It was okay. He was put under police guard. The newspapers suspected members of the Capone gang were after him. Police rummaged through his pockets and found paperwork indicating that he was now involved in slot machines. He was running slot machines all throughout the area. But unfortunately, he was trying to put slot machines in areas that were controlled by the Chicago Mafia. Big mistake. Not a good idea. Yeah. So is this guy at this point in time not tied to the Mafia? No, this guy is an independent criminal. Okay. He is not part of the Mafia. He's just, uh, he lives in this world and does not make a lot of friends. Apparently not. Following this latest shooting, the police pick up Harry Walsh for questioning. Harry Walsh is just a random guy, but uh, he doesn't like Blackie very much because Blackie likes to hit on his wife. <laughs> He's like, I didn't, I didn't kill him or try to kill him. I mean, that wasn't me. They called in his wife and gave her a lie detector test. She said, yes, it's true. Sometimes I go on dates with Blackie, but I haven't seen him for a few months. I don't think my husband was trying to kill him. <laughs> Sometimes she goes on dates with Blackie, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So once he's healthy enough, he's supposed to be standing trial for his slot machine that they find. But while he's still in the hospital, about to go to trial, the hospital receives anonymous calls saying that an attempt might be made on his life in the hospital. So he's transferred to a second hospital and again put under police watch. The trial is postponed for a while, and on the new date, Sullivan fails to appear in court. Two gas company employees were out in a prairie. I'm not sure what a prairie is, <laughs> but they're out in a prairie around the Chicago area in August 1948 when they find a wallet belonging to Blackie Sullivan that contains his driver's license, canceled checks, and other personal papers. The police were able to find even more papers a few blocks over. They thought, huh, maybe this time they finally got, got him. him. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't, I assume. But they didn't. I'm assuming this is when he runs to Milwaukee, maybe? Very close. Very close, okay. Very close. Getting a tip, detectives contact police in Rochester, Minnesota. The police in Rochester confirm that Sullivan is now in a hospital there. He claims that he doesn't know how his wallet and papers ended up in that prairie. He said that he left the hospital in Chicago about a month ago, and then he went to Rochester because he liked that hospital better, and they were <laughs> going to perform surgery to fix his shoulder. He now starts spending less time in Chicago and more time in Milwaukee. So now okay. we're in Milwaukee. Once he's in Milwaukee, he meets up with a Milwaukee mob member known as John DeTropany. And John DeTropany is going to be the focus of our next episode. So okay. keep, keep that in mind that he's an important guy. They're thinking about buying the showboat together, which I don't know what that is. I'm guessing it's either a bar or a nightclub. Mm -hmm. Doesn't end up going through. 
the police find him and say, hey, uh, we've heard about your rumor. We really don't want you uh, hanging around Milwaukee very much. So the deal kind of falls through because he can't even really go around without the police trying to push him back out. He hasn't even been a problem in Milwaukee yet, and they already want him gone. Well, now September 1948. Keep moving along here. This is a month after his papers are found in the prairie. It's like things just keep happening to this guy. Sullivan is picked up from a downtown Milwaukee tavern by four men in September 1948. They drive him out to Waukesha County, where he was badly wounded. He was hit with a blunt object, strangled, and then dumped in a ditch. At this point, a bullet enters his cheek and shatters his jaw. Another bullet hits him in the right arm, which was still in a cast from the last time that his arm was shot. This must be the guy you were talking about in the last episode. I don't think you said this on the episode, but we talked about it afterwards, where he's got his nickname because he's got so many holes in him for being shot so much. Yes, this is Blackie the Civ. (laughs) They call him the Civ because he's full of holes. (laughs) Allegedly, another bullet was fired at him but missed and hit one of the other gunmen in the stomach. I don't know how they would know that, but that's apparently what happened. He's laying there when a woman comes driving by and sees him in the ditch. Quote, At first I thought he was wearing a red sweater. Then I saw it was blood. (laughs) We thought he had been run down by a car. We stopped and he said, I've been hurt. Will you take me to a doctor? So we put him in a car and took him to the doctor. Surgeon said that his wounds were not serious, <laughs> strangely enough. He's been shot multiple times, yet nothing too serious. Yeah. They're like, oh, this guy was here last week, and he was in way worse shape yeah. than this. The Waukesha County DA places Blackie under guard, and they say, potentially we might arrest him for obstruction of justice, because even though he's the victim here, he's kind of obstructing justice by not telling us who these guys are who keep shooting him. The DA tells the press, I have not determined yet whether or not charges will be placed against Sullivan because of his physical condition. He refuses to say whether he knows the men or where he got into the car. All he says when we try to learn their identity is, I'll settle this in my own way. He says he was framed. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. But while he's uh, in the hospital this time, he has to receive blood transfusions, which are given to him by two police officers. That's oh. very nice of them. Oh, nice of them. Yeah. Yes. He does eventually confess to the district attorney in Waukesha on the condition that it's not made public. Okay. But I have that. So <laughs> he tells the DA, I saw John DeTropany in the bank at 3rd and Garfield, and I waited in the door. And when he turned and saw me, he turned white. I said, hey, greaseball, how much money did you get to take me and dump me? He got $20,000, and Joe Alioto also got $20,000. I wanted to know who paid the dough. I was picked up at 128 West Vine Street. We drove to the place on Kanikanik Avenue, where they give you service in the car. We went and had a sandwich there. Then Johnny drove down to the Best Equipment Company. Next thing, Johnny picked up two workers, fellows in overalls, and they had to work on a tavern in Delafield while we drove to Racine. We drove out Blue Mound, and then we came to Delafield and turned off on a gravel road, and then a wire went around my neck. My head was pulled down, and after giving me a terrific beating, I was shot in the head. Before I got out, I asked Johnny to help me, and when I looked, he had my left arm, and he said, Give him another shot, quick! They fired once more. I was dragged approximately 50 feet. Johnny then drove off with the other fellows in the car, and I had to walk. 
So okay. this is the guy he was going to go into a bar with, and now like a month later, right? And I think I heard you say was John Aliotto there too? Joe Aliotto. Joe Aliotto. Joe Aliotto. Okay. Who would be the son of John Aliotto? Gotcha. I assume he does have a son named Joe Aliotto, so I'm assuming this is that Joe Aliotto. Maybe you're about to go into this, but is he up to something in Milwaukee that's ticking off the Milwaukee mafia, or? Are they doing this on the behalf of the Chicago Mafia? Because the Chicago Mafia had such a beef with them. Right. It's more the second one. Okay. We do not know for sure. But the rumors, the informant rumors, are that this money to go out and take him out came from Chicago guys. The Chicago guys offered the money to get rid of him. And this is something that I'm sure it's been mentioned on here before, but it's worth repeating. When you are killed, if you're in the mafia and you get killed or this guy's not even in the mafia but when you get killed by a mafia guy it's gonna be your friend who does it it's not like you you show up somewhere and you see like two hitmen and you're like oh crap those are the mob hitmen (laughs) no they always hire the guy who's like the guy you would actually hang out with so you know when you're driving out in the country you don't think that's weird and then all of a sudden they turn around they shoot you Wow. So, yeah, so it's, it stinks, but that's unfortunately part of the deal. If you're in the mafia and they tell you to shoot your friend, you shoot your friend. It's a good way to get somebody off their guard. All right. So, yeah, there's a the anonymous tip comes in that apparently John DeTropany and Joe Eliotto were paid by the Chicago mafia to, to get rid of him. Obviously, they were not successful again. Blackie was shot at again in October 1949. This was the fourth attempt on his life in the last two years. Sullivan and his girlfriend Edith were getting out of a car near her apartment on Vine Street. One shotgun blast came from a nearby Ford. Another man got out of the car and fired three revolver shots. Nobody was hit, but windows at a grocery store and a nearby residence were shattered. A few days later, Milwaukee police drove Sullivan out of the city limits, dropped him off, and made him promise never to come back to Milwaukee. (laughs) They said, we know sooner or later you're going to get murdered. We really don't want it to happen in our city. <laughs> so they drop him off. Later on, Milwaukee police chief Paul Seen speaks to the media, and he says that Sullivan had pointed to a photo of his most recent assailant out of a rogues gallery album. And a rogues gallery, if people don't know, is like a photo album of mugshots that a police department has, and you can kind of pick out people oh, out of there. Right. People that are known to be regular criminals. The person picked out apparently was a Chicago tavern owner, but then the next day after Paul Seen makes this announcement, Sullivan says, I didn't name anybody. I've never met the police chief. I have no idea what he's talking about. When they asked me about it, I gave them a lot of hot air. So, yeah, take that for what it's worth. It's interesting. So you talked about this guy. This guy seemed like he was a petty thief, went into a little bit of gambling, right? Yep. And arson at some point in time. Yep. But all of this doesn't seem to tie, like, why does the mafia want him dead so badly? The main reason seems to be his slot machines. So when he got into the gambling thing, but it seemed, didn't didn't you say the slot machines? He wasn't getting shot at. He was still getting shot at before that, wasn't he? Hmm, good question. I don't know. I mean, okay, I could see where if he's, like, coming in on their territory with the slot machines... Yeah. They would be a little upset the, about The that. armed robbery didn't seem to upset them very much. But yeah, putting in the slot machines apparently was a problem. And some of the bombing targets apparently were a problem. 
I don't think we got to quite... Yeah, we didn't quite get to the point yet where he's bombing rivals. <laughs> but uh, we'll have to assume that when he was suspecting the bombing of the Chicago Alderman and the upholstery place, mm-hmm. there's something more going on that I don't know. No. Like the upholstery place is maybe a place a bookie hangs out at or something. I don't know. But it's obviously not just a random place where he didn't like the way they were making furniture. So maybe there's a whole bunch to this story that we don't know. And maybe this dude was like taking a run at everything the mafia was doing. Yeah. And, you know, he was like enemy number one of theirs because of it. I definitely think there's more to the story. But what really, I mean, what stands out is the fact that they killed a lot of guys. The Chicago police or Chicago Crime Commission or somebody keeps a track of everybody who's ever been killed in gang warfare in chicago right Mm -hmm. and even not counting like the street gangs like the mafia gang stuff got way over a thousand murders in chicago history so this guy like should be a footnote like he should have been like one line in the newspaper but he keeps surviving yeah (laughs) (laughs) and once you survive that then then they start paying attention to you you. so i'm sure there's a lot more to the story but yeah like if they would have got him the first time, hmm. probably nobody would have known who he was. Was Yeah, yeah. he would have just been casualty of the whole thing. But yeah. the fact that he just kept going and going, which that's interesting. Yeah, so exactly. There's probably more out there to the story yet that we're not going to cover here today. But, you know, I got to I gotta kind of try to keep it brief. So. <laughs> All right. He's picked up by the Chicago police now. He's been escorted out of Milwaukee. He says, okay. don't come back to Milwaukee. The Chicago police pick him up because he still is supposed to go to trial for that slot machine thing that they never put him on trial for yet. So they pick him up, force him to go on trial. When he's brought to court, he looks a mess. Apparently, he used to weigh 250 pounds. I don't know if that's true, but that's newspaper. But now he looked very thin. He was dressed terribly and he had missing teeth. Sullivan told the authorities that he was trying to make a life for himself in Eau Claire, but he had to come to Chicago to get a prescription filled for his wife, and that's when they picked him up and brought him to trial. Well, the court made an agreement with him. They said, we're going to drop the charges of the slot machine. We won't make you go through trial, go to prison, any of that. On the condition that you stay out of Illinois. Don't don't (laughs) Don't come come back back. to Illinois. (laughs) So they drop him back off on the Wisconsin side of the border. Not long after this, he's found badly injured in July 1951 outside of a home on South Layton Boulevard, which is like a little bit south of downtown Milwaukee. He's got a fractured skull and a broken collarbone. Police suspected that he had been beaten, but he swore, no, my fractured skull and broken collarbone are because I fell down the stairs. He was arrested because... He wasn't supposed to be back in Milwaukee. <laughs> they also found that he apparently uh, had an addiction to opiates, which is not a surprise because he's probably in constant pain. pain. Yeah. So they ship him off to the state hospital to try to get some rehab. They raid the house he was at and they find uh, 12 sticks of dynamite. 12 detonating caps, 30 feet of fuse. They speculated the dynamite might have come from the same stash of dynamite that had been used to bomb Joe Alioto's Kilbourne Hotel. Joe Alioto being one of the guys who drove him outside Mm -hmm. into Waukesha. So this guy's hotel gets bombed. And also a bombing in Kenosha of a gambling joint run by a man named Big George Ebner. So they're like, hmm, maybe he's been going around bombing all these places around here now. We don't have any connection between him and Joe Ebner, though? That one I don't know. I don't know the link there. 
Okay. So Blackie Sullivan's girlfriend is now his wife, and she's arrested for narcotics because she goes to pick up his prescription for Demerol, but it's not a real prescription. They forged it. (laughs) Apparently, that's not legal. Obviously. Yeah. And they also find several uh, prescriptions, fake prescriptions for Demerol in the house, along with a thirty-eight revolver. The wife, Edith, tells police that the dynamite they found, she says, well, you know, that's here because when I was cleaning out my old apartment, I found it in the attic. (laughs) So I just brought it along with me to our new place. And they said, okay, that's interesting. Nothing unusual about having a bunch bunch of sticks of dynamite. No, nothing unusual about that. So So. Edith is picked up on these drug charges with the fake prescription, but the judge kind of lets her go, saying, you know, we understand what you did, and we know that you're not a drug addict. So she gets two years probation. So They're just like, just don't do that anymore. (laughs) Blackie Sullivan, for some reason... Keeps on going. Goes back to Chicago. He gets picked up at a restaurant in Chicago, where he's charged with disorderly conduct. Not for anything he's done, but for his own protection, because he's disorderly just for being back in Chicago. Chicago again. He says, I'm only here because I'm looking for medical treatment. The judge dismisses the disorderly conduct charge on the agreement that he goes back to Milwaukee. (laughs) Milwaukee police captain Kramer says, if Blackie Sullivan comes back here, we're going to arrest him for vagrancy. Does this guy not realize that there is a, there are places in the world other than Chicago and Milwaukee? I mean, no. I mean, if you're really attached to the two, pick a place in the middle, plop your butt down there, and stay there. You know. No. One month later, after he's pushed out of Chicago by this judge, he goes to a bar in Milwaukee. <laughs> the bartender recognizes him and calls the police, who arrest him for vagrancy. <laughs> They say, hey, we told you, <laughs> don't, come, don't come here, and they put him in jail for six months. They say, you are the most shot-at man that we have ever had here. <laughs> Just having you around is a menace to the community, because if somebody misses when they try to shoot you, you could shoot somebody else. Unbelievable. Blackie Sullivan complained, saying, can I really help it if I'm being shot at? <laughs> <laughs> He gets out of jail, and he goes to visit his wife at the LaSalle Hotel. Now she's moved out of this house, and she lives at the LaSalle Hotel, where she works as, like, a, a maid, basically. He comes in through the back door. The staff doesn't see him, but someone else sees him, <laughs> and they call the police. And he's put back in jail again. The police interview him, and they say, Hey, you look about 20 pounds heavier than the last time we saw you. Have you been staying out of trouble? Are you living good? And he goes, Yeah, and I've been getting regular exercise, too. <laughs> and it's like, Okay, but get out of Milwaukee. <laughs> we don't hear from him again for two years. So I don't know where he is for these two years, but apparently he's actually staying out. He finally figured out there's a place other than Milwaukee and Chicago. Yeah. Good job, Blackie. Yeah. March 1954. One of the members of the Milwaukee Mafia, John DeTropany, has been murdered. Okay. So although he's not supposed to be in Milwaukee... Milwaukee police pick up Blackie Sullivan and bring (laughs) him to Milwaukee because they want to ask him what he knows about this. He says, nothing to do with it. I work an honest job now. I've got a wife. I've got two kids. I'm out of that. I haven't seen him. I haven't seen Detropany in five years now. So it's not me. And they're like, okay, fine. They pick him up again a month later and ask him again. Like, 
you sure you don't know anything about this John DeTropany murder? We know you guys didn't get along very well. He did try to kill you and everything. And he's like, no, it's not me. I'll take a lie detector test. I'll do whatever you want. Just please stop harassing me. He goes, if you harass me anymore, I'm going to file a restraining order against you. As far as I know, that's the last time the police ever contacted him. So he actually, and do you know, did he live out the rest of his life and actually die of natural causes and nobody ever got him? Well, there's one paragraph left. left. Are okay. you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Blackie Sullivan is 51 years old. He goes in for surgery in April 1956. While getting surgery, he suffers surgical shock, and his reaction to surgery is intensified by the amount of scar tissue on his body from all the prior assassination attempts, and he dies on the operating table. But he was not shot. He wasn't going in for surgery because he got shot, right? Not specifically, It was was just some medical condition, probably linked to being shot like 11 times. Right, right. But he's dead at 51 because... If he had not been covered in bullet holes and scar tissue, his surgery probably would have been successful. So, in a roundabout way, they did get him. him. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy, and it's. I can't imagine living a life like that where you're, (laughs) like, every... His whole life he was running and getting shot at. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's a a very interesting character, and um, I won't say her name on here because she is alive, but his daughter, I've I've spoken with his daughter, and yeah, very interesting character. I mean, she didn't really know him. She was just a child when he died, but of course, you know, she hears stuff and like, man, what a a character. That is crazy. And I, I wish we knew the rest of this story because, I mean, there was obviously a lot of tension between him and the mafia. Yeah. And, and I can't imagine a couple slot machines is enough to drive that. I mean, could be, but I, I got to imagine he was putting... It's hits. enough to get you killed, but the fact they just kept coming. coming yeah. yeah. Like, uh, you would think they would maybe try to kill him while he was doing the gambling thing. Yeah. But then once he left and went to Milwaukee, they probably would just leave it be. Or maybe they would put the bounty on to Milwaukee. Milwaukee would try to go put a hit on him, and then yeah. that would be the end of I it. I could see so. it either way, but yeah. I mean, really, if you shoot him, even if he survives, if you scared him enough that he's not doing it anymore, you did you what would, you were doing. Yeah, yeah, you would think. I mean... We've talked about this a lot on this podcast that they are. They're driven by money. They're a business. Mm-hmm. So if you're not messing up their business, or hopefully get over it. Right. <laughs> but apparently whatever he did, they did not get over. Well, that's all I got for Blackie Sullivan. Like I said, so next time will be John DeTropany. Spoiler alert, Blackie Sullivan's not the guy who kills him. Some, yeah. But to find out maybe who did, I mean, tune in next time. You got anything else for me? I don't think so. I think we covered this one pretty well. So, All right. So a little, well, it's not really a short episode. So No, I mean, and, and in the, the beginning, I glossed over a lot of the, he's arrested for robbery, he's arrested for robbery, because those things don't really matter to the story. But just letting you know, this guy, ever since he was at least 17, if not earlier, he, he, he was constantly getting picked up. And he was not, apparently not very good at what he did. No. So he probably should have very early on taken a new career path. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we can wrap this one up. As always, anybody, there is a Patreon out, patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, and sign up for that. 
really good bonus content. I think that we just recently dropped a little snippet for everybody to hear if they're of the Patreon content. We so did. So you can check that out in the normal feed. I'm actually surprised you know that, but yes, we did. Yeah, and uh, and as always, if you enjoy this podcast, leave us a positive feedback on your favorite podcast player. And Gavin, hit them with that contact information. Yeah, you can email me at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, suggestions. If you have a question, I'll answer it. And if it's a really good question, it'll also be turned into a full episode. And if you go to milwaukeemafia.com, you can find today's show notes. So all the stuff that I kind of glossed over, you can read in, in detail if you're interested in this story you want to learn more. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back in a week with the Patreon and two weeks with a regular episode. We'll see you then. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.